Welcome to Ed Talks, an audio podcast presented by Achieve Minneapolis and the Citizens League in partnership with Indigo Education and Pollen. Ed Talks is a lively series of community conversations about public education and related issues that impact our young people. Each Ed Talks features two compelling short presentations by cutting edge educators, youth advocates, students, artists, or community leaders. Ed Talks is supported by generous grants from the Bush Foundation and the Vern C. Johnson Family Foundation. This Ed Talks focuses on understanding the experiences of students with unique needs. Our featured speaker is Brian Boyce. Brian is the founder and executive director of Cow Tipping Press, which cultivates writers with developmental disabilities and gives readers a new way to think about this rich form of human diversity. As the sibling of a brother with developmental disabilities, Brian knows firsthand the value and richness of exchange across neurological difference. Brian was joined on stage by cow tipping author Shinoa Makinen. This Ed Talk was recorded in front of a live audience at Ice House in Minneapolis on September 25, 2017. Hi. Good? Cool. Uh, every summer of my childhood, the excitement of, of getting out of school was marked by an even more fun tradition, uh, which was my younger brother Jay's birthday party uh, at our family lake cabin, just a few miles down the road, where a big group of his friends and a token one of mine would spend the whole day swimming out to the raft, waging squirt gun wars against each other, walking downtown to buy little Debbie snacks, you know, the stuff of childhood bliss. But I remember one particular summer in junior high, one of his guests pulled me and my friend aside and kind of conspiratorially whispered, hey, do you realize we're the only normal people here? Felt kind of uncomfortable, wasn't exactly sure what to say. Uh, but it was true that as my brother's diagnoses were piling up, including a developmental disability, that his friend group and peers were growing less and less heterogeneous. Sure enough, that was the last summer that that particular guest attended the party. Uh, today, my brother lives in a group home alongside other people with developmental disabilities, wakes up, rides a special bus alongside others with disabilities to go work in a special uh, facility alongside coworkers with disabilities, goes home, does the same thing. And I share that with you not to make you feel sad. There's a disability rights adage, piss on pity, which I fully subscribe to. Uh, but to raise some questions that have circled with me since that time. Uh, one, why did that process of becoming more and more segregated uh, amongst people who are just like you seem so automatic uh, and foreordained? And then two, what would it take in our wildest dreams to build a world where those kids and the families behind them didn't just choose to keep coming uh, to those parties and interacting with my brother, uh, but sought out and actively relished that his disability, challenges that it might include, is a rich form of human difference that they can learn and gain from like any other form of diversity that they might seek out and that I knew as a sibling. Uh, so what I and Shinoa are here tonight to do, and very excited to be here for, uh, is to kind of walk you through uh, the exploration of those questions and maybe even offer a couple provisional answers. 
quick disclaimer before I go any further, I use the term developmental disability, acknowledging that we don't have perfect language to talk about this form of human difference. Some people might prefer uh, a more asset-focused term, like neurodiverse, or just naming specific disabilities, autism, Down syndrome. I use developmental disability just to refer to people whose brains developed differently from what's considered quote-unquote normal. Uh, and I think it's important that we have some kind of language to talk about this because that allows us to see people with disabilities as a people with a membership, however diverse, uh, that is also a people with a history. Generally speaking, if we're in the developing world and someone has a disability or particular needs, that's taken care of privately, maybe by families, often by families, maybe by charity. Uh, again, generally speaking though, if we are in the developed world, we've created these kind of big uh, public systems, our social services and human services systems, to take care of these needs publicly. And there are meaningful pros and cons to both of those approaches. Uh, but one thing that's interesting about building a big public system is that it reflects the values and mindsets of the time in which it was created. For us, 19th century America. Uh, a time when the field of psychiatry is just kind of burgeoning with dips into weird things like phrenology and eugenics. The Industrial Revolution is well underway. Automation, uh, big mass production. And our thinking about disability is firmly rooted in what's called the medical model, or the idea that the best way to engage someone with a disability is to help fix that disability or ameliorate it. And now there's a time and place for that form of thinking. Uh, but when it's applied wholesale to building a big structure and system, you get some strange things. Institutions, big state hospitals, at least 12 in Minnesota, uh, that house just people with disabilities because that's the most efficient way to treat them. Parents, if giving birth to uh, a child with a disability, encouraged to give them over to these hospitals, uh, maybe tell their family that the child died, just forget about it, out of sight, out of mind. People in these settings being sterilized because in the words of Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, quote unquote, three generations of imbeciles is enough. A forerunner to Nazi Germany taking that a step further a few decades later. And the pushback against this kind of thinking, I think is one of the great unsung civil rights stories of the 20th century and comes in what's called the social model the idea that maybe it's not a disability all the time that needs fixing, but society's thinking about an approach to disability in the first place. And so through the work of street protesters and grassroots activists and top-level policy change, we've made progress. Uh, even today, compared to say 50 years ago, someone with a developmental disability is more likely to live in a group home than live in an institution even though they might not have much say in the roommates that they live alongside. There's a chance that they work in a community job rather than in a setting that's just people with developmental disabilities, though legally they can still be paid sub-minimum wage. I've done some work on the front lines of this kind of inclusion, and I'll always remember my first day uh, starting in one of them. Uh, I was super, super excited. It was working for community integrated employment with teams of people with disabilities. We were going to be dishwashers in this big corporate setting. And so 
we go to the, this kitchen within this setting. Uh, we have kind of our place where we're washing the dishes. We do that for the whole morning. And then we go out to the lunchroom. There's probably 50 people eating lunch. What do we do? We sit down in the corner at the table that just the people with disabilities and their paid staff sit at, and we talk amongst ourselves. And I think that kind of story and its experience, the way it echoes what I started this talk with, uh, has showed me that we can make a lot of progress along lines of integration and have people with disabilities showing up in places that they haven't before. And that that's really important, uh, and that's part of the picture. But that's only gonna take us so far if our thinking is still firmly rooted in old ways of conceiving of disability. That if we think of disability as just a deficit, something to be pitied, rather than an asset, maybe something even to be sought out or relished as a form of identity, uh, that we're only gonna go so far. Some people even analogize it to integrating lunch counters in the Jim Crow South without doing anything to tackle white supremacist or white racist mindsets. It's only part of the picture. Here's where we enter education. Because where do all of us form a lot of our foundational mindsets about the world, if not in the classroom? Uh, and I studied and taught English, uh, so I have a sense of how it connects to this discipline. But I firmly believe that disability relates in so many ways to all sorts of disciplines. Uh, but in this particular instance, um, I can kind of walk you through how that comes into the way we teach. Uh, quick survey here. Raise your hand and keep it in the air if you have read The Sound and the Fury by William Faulkner, Of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck, The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime by Mark Haddon. Maybe you saw it at the Guthrie a few months ago. Uh, Flowers for Algernon by Daniel Keyes. Pretty well-read audience. Good. You can put your heads down. Hands. Um, okay. The reason I ask that is because all of those books feature uh, characters and are about people with a variety of disabilities. Down syndrome, intellectual disability, phenylketonuria, uh, um, sorry, autism. Now, kind of the second part of the survey. Raise your hand and keep it up if you have read a book by someone with autism, Down syndrome, phenylketonuria, or an intellectual disability. A couple hands in the air. Um, I think part of the reason we answer like that is, again, because of the fundamental way we think about developmental disability. If we're thinking, this is a deficit, these are people who can do some things, but, you know, not too much, uh, then a book where a non-disabled author is writing about and kind of depicting that experience is maybe the closest that readers or our students are going to get to stepping into those shoes. But if we think about disability as, again, a form of diversity that is core to someone's being, offers its own kind of distinct ways of um, presenting itself and challenging us and an and opportunity to connect with, uh, we see that the inequity and imbalance of that is clear. If I just ask the same question about reading a book featuring or about a character who's black versus having read something by a black author, we'd be shocked at that discrepancy, right? If you had all said that you'd read memoirs uh, about what it's like to raise a child who's gay, but you had never read anything by an LGBT author, that'd be ridiculous. 
It's similarly ridiculous when we're talking about developmental disability. But part of the reason you answer that way is also simply because there's not a whole huge body of writing by this population out there. Not a ton of it exists. Um, our funding structures, our policies, our programs are not always set up to celebrate this difference uh, and give opportunities for like meaningful creation by this population. And so we have to create those, which is what Cow Tipping Press does. There's a lot of exciting things about what we do as an organization, uh, ways that it's super gratifying. Uh, but I think one of the most is that things that are valued in the space of creative writing, uh, things like using language in a new way, inverting your syntax, playing around with capitalization, uh, following Ezra Pound's dictum to make it new, or to borrow a, a startup uh, sort of buzzword, thinking divergently, those are skills that sometimes people, maybe it's a corporate executive at a, a retreat or a student at, at a liberal arts college, might pay thousands, uh, if not tens of thousands of dollars to train their brains to develop. Those skills, they often come naturally uh, to people with disabilities. So writing is a space where we can kind of tease out and show how sometimes the skills of people with disabilities are even more advanced than uh, the rest of society. And of course, if I just got up here and said for a long time, oh, it's really important that we engage the self-representative voices of people with disabilities, and just talked about that, uh, it would be deeply ironic if we didn't also walk the walk. Uh, so without further ado, I'm going to ask Shinoa Mackinnon to come and join us on the stage. Shinoa, would you like to start by sharing one of your pieces with us? Hi, my name's Noah, and I'm gonna share one piece. A young girl, six years old, her grandpa first brought her up north, a three-hour drive away where there's crops on the farming field. In the country, out of town, Monogamon, he lived his life. He loved the countryside. He loved the dirt on the road. Where he rides his four-wheeling trucks for fun, he loves to cook and bake sometimes. He is the country living years. Where he wakes up at dawn here, the rooster crows, cooks eggs from my cousin's farm next door works all day until sun goes down. He loves to be fishing on a boat and sleep in a camper with grandchildren he loves. He loves roasting marshmallows and makes s'mores on a campfire every time. He is the country living years where he rides his orange Corvette to any place. To wear hat, he wears hats all the time a three-hour drive away where he served the peace he loved. The country out of town, Monogamon, my grandpa lived 
in that trailer house. He loves, the, he loves the countryside all the time. A young girl, six years old, her grandpa brought her up north, where there's trees, plants, animals on a farming field. He is the country living life. In the country out of town, Minagamin, he lived his life on a farm. He worked on construction stuff before he served for peace he loved. He loved a, a three-hour drive away, another left, another left to sleep at rest on July 2nd at 4 p.m. 2016. The Lord called my grandpa to rest in peace in the country out of town. Menagamin, my grandpa, lived his life on a farm. A three-hour drive away where it's quiet since he left that summer day. In the country, out of town, Menagamin, my grandpa, built the trailer house. Helped so many on the way before he served the armed forces for peace, for freedom of liberty. A three-hour drive away where there's wood, trees, animals, and crops on the farming field. In the country, out of town, Menagamin, he lived his in that trailer house. He is the country living life. Could you tell us a little bit about that poem? What inspired it? Uh, how you created it? part would be he loved the countryside all the time he loved the dirt on the road it was talking about my grandpa where when I was six years old he drove me up north to monogamous three-hour drive away and could you tell us a little bit about what your experience in school was like whether that was when you were writing or doing other activities one of my favorite experiences in school was, I would say, band and choir together. That was my favorite. Why? Because you get to sing and play at the same time. <laughs> Good endorsement of music education. Uh, can you think of some of your favorite teachers and what they did that really made them great teachers for you? One of my favorite teachers, I would say, Miss Young Doll. When I, I had her as a choir band teacher, and she was my favorite. And one day, we, we seen each other at CVS. <laughs> my second favorite teacher would be Miss Prokash, my reading teacher, she inspired me to be myself. And then my last one would be my science teacher, would be both because I love science. Any advice you would offer to a room full of people who work in and are interested in education? Might be teachers themselves? Any, any 
Do you have advice for the audience? Do anybody have advice? No, I'm asking to you. My advice to everyone would be um, do what you love. Um, if you love singing or writing or playing music, that's how you should go instead of not quit. Sound advice. I'm glad that you've had opportunities with teachers to explore what you love. Uh, like I said, um, I think writing is a particularly cool space to engage what understanding and integration along this line of difference can look like in a totally new way. Um, not only because it's absolutely an act of justice, not charity, for an underrepresented voice to be up and sharing uh, what they have to say in a space that they usually wouldn't. Um, but there's also, it's okay to have a little self-interest to this too. Having different voices and, and ways of being and opinions uh, expressed enriches our bookshelves, our classrooms, our experience, and our lives uh, that conversely we leave on the table if we accept a status quo of quote unquote separate but equal. And that definitely relates to English, but I think it applies to all sorts of other disciplines. Why don't we teach this civil rights story in our social studies classrooms the same way we do some more familiar stories? How cool would it look in a biology class if when we're studying chromosomes uh, and we get to 21, you don't just open the book and show the picture of a person with Down syndrome and say, this is what Down syndrome is, but you have the students in your school who have Down syndrome come up and present on what that means to them as being part of who they are. I don't dip a lot into math, but again, that's a field where uh, People with autism, generally speaking, sometimes have skills that are more advanced because of their disability. What can we learn from those implications? Um, one in 50 of peers we all were born alongside has a developmental disability. But for most of us, just picture your day-to-day -day activities, even in our most expressly inclusive, radically inclusive social spaces, one in 50 of our daily interactions don't reflect that. That's from choices that we made as a society for how to set ourselves up, and that can be changed, big, small, long-term, short-term, by choices that we make as educators, as people, as employees, etc. To borrow a line from Shinoa's poem, you would take a three-hour drive or further to give your students, or yourself for that matter, opportunities to experience new places, new cultures, hands-on learning. But what if just traveling that mental dis distance and connecting with the diversity of brains that are already around us could be similarly enriching. It is. I think the only thing we're limited by is our imagination, our creativity, our willingness to work for it, and then we've only scratched the surface of possibility of what this can do for all of us. So, to close out, Shinoa, would you like to share another one of your pieces, be it musical or not? I'll share one more. It's a song that I wrote. It's called Camp and Fish. Hope y'all like it. Grandpa, it's been a year since you left this place. I'm sad to say you're in a better place. I wish we could take your place and bring you back. If you're not 
Ed Talks is presented by Achieve Minneapolis and the Citizens League in partnership with Indigo Education and Pollen. Thanks to our generous sponsors, the Bush Foundation and the Vern C. Johnson Family Foundation. For more information on Ed Talks or to watch Ed Talks videos and podcasts, visit AchieveMPLS.org.